Good morning. Hello. Check, 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 check. Check, check, check. Hello. Don't think it's on, guys. Lights are on. Okay, great. We are on. Good morning, Northgate Baptist Church. Good morning. I'm going to read you a scripture from Psalm 107.1, and it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. We can always thank God, no matter what our circumstances are. And if you are brand new to us, we want to thank God for you and just welcome you to our uh, church. If you're joining us online, we just want to welcome you as well, too. In person, we have a special gift for you. So please connect with a pastor or one of the ushers at the back, and we'll make sure you get that gift. Just a few announcements to follow up with. Um, We are going to show a video, I believe. Is it going to roll? Okay, great. I'll be on after. The death of a spouse brings a unique kind of pain. I didn't have energy to do anything. I didn't care if I made dinner or ate or whatever. I didn't fit in anymore with the group of couples. I had no idea how I was going to face the future. If you feel like you're alone in your grief, be encouraged that you are not. Whatever you're facing, others have faced it too. And at a loss of a spouse event, there are people waiting to help. At a loss of a spouse event, you'll learn what to expect in the weeks and months after your spouse's death and how to survive the loneliness. Loss of a Spouse features video interviews with seven respected Christian counselors, psychologists, and pastors, plus the inspiring stories of widowed people who've learned how to rebuild their lives. And if you know people who are grieving the death of a spouse, invite them to come to this life-changing event. It's in talking about your circumstances with other people that you begin to understand your situation better. That helps you process your grief. Find hope, comfort, and encouragement for your journey of grief. Make plans to attend a loss of a spouse event near you. That is a, am I on? All right. So that is an amazing ministry, and Pastor Mark Barrett, Mark, do you just want to wave so the church knows, yeah, right, Pastor Mark Barrett is going to facilitate uh, loss of a spouse um, on Saturday, February 5th, so you can contact him if you're interested, or if you know somebody who has lost a spouse, um, just um, connect him with Pastor Mark Barrett, and you can call the office and get in touch with him, or see him after the service. Our Family Matters meeting, we're having another one, folks. It is on February 2nd at 7 p.m. If you guys can make it, we'd really appreciate The last time we couldn't meet a quorum, so that's why we're meeting again. So that's, again, February 2nd, 7 p.m. Circle your calendars. Uh, We're having a baptism and membership class on January 30th and February 6th. Again, Pastor Mark Barrett, connect with him, and he will... I'll give you that information if you're interested in being a member or taking the step of baptism. As you can see in our foyer, we have two tables set up full of valuable treasures, are lost and found. This is the last week you guys can claim them. So please take a look through all those things I've been collecting over the year. And uh, if they're not gone by the end of the service, we're going to donate them 
to somebody. We'll do a raffle or something. So, yeah, we're going to do, 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 donate all that stuff. So just uh, check out the lost and found table. Um, all right. So that's for announcements. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to dismiss the kids. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you, God, the way that your Holy Spirit's moving through the lives of the people in this church, God. And Lord, I just uh, pray for Pastor Mark as he comes up and and speaks your word, Lord. I pray that uh, you would just speak through him, God, and and give him the words to say, Lord. And may his words just be an encouragement to the congregation. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Good morning. Am I on? Yeah, there you go. Uh, good morning. Uh, once again, whether you are here in person or joining us online, I uh, just want to thank you for being a part of our church. Um, I had just kind of a kooky morning this morning. I, you know, ever have one of those mornings where just everything kind of goes a little crazy? So uh, I actually left without my suit jacket this morning, so I'm feeling weird up here. Uh, just want to remind people at home, the camera adds 10 pounds, right? So uh, so does pepperoni pizza, but so you can kind of make your own call on, on whatever's there. But uh, that won't matter too much, because uh, I just want to ask you to take your Bibles with you this morning, uh, open them up to 1 John, as we begin looking at the second chapter of this letter that John wrote. And actually, something kind of interesting happened to me as I was going through the, this chapter uh, this week that I was going to speak on, because I was pretty sure that I was only going to speak on maybe the first four or five verses of chapter two. But then as I sort of kept reading, I thought, well, that, you know, that verse actually goes with the one before. And then I kept reading, and the next one was sort of the same thing and the same things, and realized that, you know, John was kind of stringing things together. And even though John is speaking about a bunch of different topics in this passage we're going to look at this morning, everything he's doing is really pointing us towards a singular purpose. Uh, to give us just assurance of our salvation in Christ Jesus. So instead of sort of mining down into a few select verses this morning, we're going to take more of an overview of what John is writing about here in this passage. And the good news is that everything that he's talking about, all the different points that I'm going to give you this morning, is something that he actually goes on and talks about in a different part of the book. So we're actually, we'll be covering most of these in detail at a later date. Uh, But this is our chance to see sort of a bigger picture of what John has to tell us. And we have quite a bit to cover, so we're just going to jump in, begin reading our passage this morning. Uh, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go all the way to verse 14. And John says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. 
An old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Lord God, we just pray that you would be with us, um, just in a, again, in a powerful way this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, would be our guide, and that, Lord, you would help us to just open our eyes to see the word. Uh, that you have put before us this morning. Um, Yeah, in Christ we pray that you would be exalted uh, and high and lifted up and that you would be revealed to us through the word we are seeing today and that we would see all the things that you are doing in our lives through your salvation in Christ Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the reality for most of us is... COVID's, I mean, COVID's kind of messed up our lives. Normal just doesn't feel normal again. So this illustration may feel like something from almost a different life, a long time ago, or even wishful thinking. But the next time you're at an airport going somewhere, remember when we used to do that? The next time you're at an airport, I want you to just observe the people around you and see if you can tell the difference between the people who have confirmed tickets and those who are trying to fly on standby. And you may notice that the ones with confirmed tickets are relaxed. Maybe reading a newspaper or magazine, uh, you know, just talking or laughing on their cell phones or even falling asleep. While the people who are trying to fly on standby, they're hanging around the ticket counter. They're, they're pacing. They're just, you know, they have that anxious look on their face. So what's the difference between the two types of people? Well, it's, it's the confidence factor. Uh, the people with confirmed tickets are able to just relax and have a sense of peace because they know they're getting on the plane. There's a seat on the plane for them. But the people who are on standby, they just they aren't sure. They aren't sure if they're really going on that trip. So they're nervous the entire time. And In many ways, the same thing could be said about people on their way to heaven. The ones who are confident just live with peace. There's a relaxedness about us. There's a confidence in the way that they live. But the ones that are unsure are often just, they're a bit of a nervous wreck all the time. You may remember, you know, back in the day, we used to ask that question of people, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? And we used to ask people that question to try to get unbelievers to sort of think about the state of their souls. But, you know, what I see a lot of even today is that there are Christians, people who have already made a decision to make Jesus their Savior, but they still wrestle with that question. And they wonder, am I really going to make it? Or am I flying standby? Because we all 
we all wrestle with doubts sometimes. You know, we've all seen that, you know, high-profile minister fall from grace and wonder, you know, were they really saved? And if they weren't saved, can anyone really know that they're saved? And we all struggle with, you know, in our lives sometimes with sin and think, you know, if I'm dealing with this thing and I can't get over it, does it really mean I'm in the kingdom? We all read those passages in the Bible about falling away and wonder, you know, could it be talking about me? We all just, I think, look at just the messiness of our lives sometimes and think, am I really doing this right? I mean, is this, is this really what salvation looks like? And I think that John knows that people struggle with those kind of thoughts. In fact, after what John has just written in the first chapter, you can almost expect that people were, were, were thinking about that. Because John has just challenged that false teaching that some people were teaching in that church that said, there's no such thing as sin. And there's, you know, you know, that they were saying, no one is a sinner. And John confronts that. He says, you are a sinner. And if you claim you're without sin, you're lying to yourself. Sin is very real. And while some people in that church gave sin no concern, some people heard that and just thought, well, I am a sinner. Ah, you know, and the flip side is that there's many people in every church who probably worry about sin too much. And they're confronted and they're convicted by their sinfulness daily and they're just overwhelmed with guilt. And they worry about so much about their sin that they can even begin to doubt the state of their salvation. But you know what? John's purpose of this letter is not to just unsettle people. His purpose is not to back up a guilt truck on people and make them question their faith. It's actually the opposite. His purpose is to actually comfort uh, people who may be struggling with that. His purpose is to write words that give people a certainty about their salvation. His purpose is to give assurance of eternal life to the people of God. In fact, he even comes out right out and says that in 1 John 5, verse 13. As he's wrapping up this letter, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So I want you to hear something very clearly this morning. You can know, you can have assurance of your standing before God. You can have assurance of your place in heaven. You can know and know beyond a doubt that you are saved. And understand this as well. God wants you to have that kind of assurance in your life. He wants us as Christians to be living with that kind of confidence. God doesn't want us to be nervous wrecks, always wondering, am I in or am I out? He wants believers who are bold in their faith who trust in their faith and trust in Him and live with that confidence in every area of their lives. And as we break down this passage we have before us this morning, there are things that John speaks about. In fact, there's six things that we can see happening in our lives that should bring us a sense of assurance when we see these things going on. These are things that should give rest to our souls when it comes to our eternal life. And John begins in verse 1 by saying, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And here the first word you may want to write down is sanctification. And that's just a fancy way of saying we are being made holy as the people of God. In Christ, we are in the process of overcoming sin and escaping you know, bondage to our transgressions. And that happens as the Spirit of God goes to work in our lives and accomplishes this work within us. And make note of that sanctification is a work of God. 
And I say that because there's a lot of people who think when it comes to their sin in their life, they think it's all up to me. It's all up to what I can do. It's all up to my you know, willpower alone that is going to accomplish this in my life. If I'm going to get you know, free from sin, it's up to me. But we do have a role to play. I mean, we can, in our lives, make decisions that will both help and hinder this work of God in our lives. Um, actually, one great illustration that I heard years ago was about one man who struggled with pornography. Uh, and he had to always pass by sort of an adult bookstore every day as he walked to work from his bus stop. And he struggled for months, you know, thinking, today's the day I'm not going to yield to temptation. But every day he failed and found himself going into that bookshop. And finally, he talked to his pastor about it. And the pastor just said, you know what? Just walk a different way to work. Just go around the block so you don't have to walk by the shop. And it worked. That's what he did. And, it, and he, he began to overcome that because he took the temptation away by literally changing the way he walked. And we can do those things in our lives. We can make some changes that really help when it comes to you know, temptations and struggling with sin. But true victory comes not in changing what we do, but by God changing our hearts. It's not through willpower, although willpower is important. It's not through willpower, but it is through Holy Spirit power that we are sanctified. Uh, Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16, But, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And even 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And basically, one way, what I'm telling you, is one way to think about what God is doing when he's sanctifying us is he's changing our appetite for sin as we begin to follow the Spirit. That God makes us holy. As God makes us holy, sin no longer appeals to us the way that it used to before we were in Christ. Because when our hearts are set on the Spirit, they desire the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. You know, my wife uh, used to crave hot wings when she was pregnant with Nathan. Uh, she couldn't get enough hot wings. Like, just like, I picked so many. Like, she loved them. But after she gave birth, the craving just went away. And she didn't intentionally try not to eat hot wings after Nathan was born. It's just her appetite for them changed. And that's what God does in our hearts. God makes us holy by changing our hearts. He changes our appetites to sin. And the best indication that God is actually doing that, exactly that in your life, that he's sanctifying you, is that he's actually, he gives you a greater awareness of sin in your life. And that, I think, seems almost paradoxical. Because how can an increasing awareness of, our, of my sin, especially, you know, when we so often, you know, we see so much sin in our lives, how can me seeing so much sin in my own life mean that God is dealing with my sin. And I know many believers who struggle with sin. Some have addictions. And many times they think, you know, because I'm struggling so much with these things, this sanctification thing must not be working for me. And often those people are broken in their sin, and that leads to that, that place of guilt. But that brokenness is actually proof that God is actually at work in their life. It's proof that that war between their old flesh, their old nature, and their new nature is, is taking place. Because only those who are not in Christ are not bothered by sin. I don't know if that's the best way to say that. But if you're wrestling with guilt over sins this morning, 
Know that your continuing struggle is not necessarily a sign of your failure. It may be well be evidence that God is continually moving you to a place of greater holiness. It's a greater awareness of sin is a powerful thing that actually reminds us that we are truly saved and that God is doing a work in our lives. But you know what? Even as we struggle with sin, uh, listen to John's next word of advice as he continues in the second half of verse 1, where he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, one interesting thing I read this week about this verse is that in the Greek tense that John uses in verse 1, you could basically, it basically could read like this. He says, if anyone does sin, and you probably will. Like, there's almost sort of an assurance that this is going to happen. Because sin is something that we all still struggle with. As long as we live life in this fallen world, there's always going to be that temptation to sin, and we're always going to trip up sometimes. But then John reminds us of that, of the next lesson that he wants us to know. And that lesson is assurance. Um, it's sort of ju- it's justification. Um, justification brings assurance. That even though we are sinners, we can remind ourselves that we are saved by grace through faith. And John uses the word here, uh, propitiation. Which means that, that Jesus took the wrath. He took the consequences. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself on the cross so that God's justice could be satisfied and that we could be forgiven. In fact, you can almost think of these verses as as sort of a courtroom drama on TV where, you know, you're the guilty party and you're on trial before the judge and you're feeling just, you know, the pressure and the guilt of your sin. And you know you've been caught red-handed and you have no defense to offer. You are a sinner. And the judge is ready to issue his verdict. And it's a just verdict. It's, it's the sentence of death for what you've done. But then, just then, Jesus shows up in the courtroom as your defense attorney. And he intercedes on your behalf. And even though you are found guilty, he pays the price for your crime. He takes your sentence upon himself. Someone once said, Jesus is a defense lawyer who's never had an innocent client and yet has never lost a case. Because he took the penalty for guilt himself so that we could walk away free and be forgiven. And the take-home lesson here is that we should be able to know peace when it comes to our standing before God because of the work of Christ upon the cross. And that, yes, we fail and we mess up sometimes, but it's not up to us, it's up to Jesus. Because we're not saved by our own ability to earn a place in heaven. We're saved by Jesus' propitiation, by his justification and his death on the cross. And that's what we can hold on to in those times when we begin to doubt. The assurance of what Christ has done upon the cross. And then John goes on in verse 3. And he says this, By this we know that we have come to him. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And here the word I would give you is transformation, uh, in that we begin to change the way that we live. Christ changes our behavior. He changes our actions, and we begin to live in obedience to his word. 
And you know, John lets us in on a big secret here, and he'll cover this a lot later in the book as well, but he tells us that the motivation for us living this new life of obedience is love. That by doing this, truly the love of God is perfected. And that almost seems crazy to me. Um, because when it comes to ministry or really anything else, I, I got to tell you, the, one of the best ways to motivate people is not love. It's guilt. Uh, best way to get people to do something that maybe they don't even want to do is actually take away their assurance and make them think that maybe they just need to work a little bit harder in order to be accepted. Guilt is a great motivator. But that's not the way obedience is supposed to work. And John tells us that it's love. And you know, people struggle with that because sometimes we think about obedience as being like, oh, drudgery. Like, oh, I got to obey. You know, your friend comes up, hey man, want to have some fun? He's like, no, I'm a Christian now and I got all these rules I got to follow. And it's, it, you know, but no, that's not, that's not the way it would even, John is telling us we are actually motivated even more when we, because after we have assurance, because we understand love, obedience done right, he says, is a joy, not a drudgery or a duty or like a checklist of boring things you got to do. It, 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 it's love. Uh, it, it is, and, and knowing that you are loved by God and loving Him in return is the driving force of our lives. And it just changes how we live. We live in obedience, but not as a burden, but as part of the blessing uh, of being saved. Um, so lives of obedience is proof uh, of our salvation. And, and along those lines, John then adds in verse 5, he says, And by this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And here's another word for our list this morning, and that's imitation. Um, as we abide in Christ, John tells us we become Christ-like. Uh, the words he uses is we walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Uh, and that reminded me really of, of Jesus' words in, the, in the, uh, the upper room. John 15, beginning of verse 4. Jesus says to his disciples, Abide in me as, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And the fruit that Jesus is talking about there is, is, is character. Pastor Rick Warren writes, people often use the phrase like father, like son to refer to a family resemblance. When people see my likeness in my kids, it pleases me. And God wants his children to bear his image and likeness too. You were created to be like Christ. From the very beginning, God's plan was, has been to make you like his son, Jesus. God wants you to develop the kind of character described in the Beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5 and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and Paul's great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13 and Peter's list of characteristics of the effective and productive life in 2 Peter chapter 1. Because Jesus did not die on the cross so we could live comfortable, well-adjusted lives. His purpose is far deeper. He wants to make us like himself before he takes us into heaven. And if we are abiding in Jesus, we will see Christ-like character developing. We'll begin to walk like Jesus. Because God loves us too much to let us stay the same. But he also loves us too much to leave us alone as well. And that's what brings us into verse 7. Where John says, Beloved, I am writing to you, I am, I am writing to you no new commandment, 
but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And here's a word, the next word you can write down, and that's adoration. Uh, The commandment that John is giving us here really is love. Love one another. Loving our fellow believers. And you know what? Sadly, this can be something we tend to overlook, especially in North America, because I think in North America, we often think of faith as something we do as individuals, Um, that, you know what, we're trying to save a person, you know, you know, to be saved, that you have to pray this prayer, and if you do it, then you are God and now good, and you can kind of go on with your life. But as Christians, and this is a real, John drives this home in this letter, as Christians, we can never overlook the importance of of community, that we are to be doing and living out our faith together, and that we are to discover the wonder of God and all that God has done for us together as a community, as a church, surrounded by other believers, and that we can encourage each other and accept each other and edify each other and serve each other, honor each other, care for each other, pray for each other, forgive each other, spur each other on, because we'll never experience the fullness of salvation on our own. We need the church. And we need to love one another. And this is so important that Jesus himself says in John 13, and 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Loving one another is not just a sign we're saved, it's a sign to the world that salvation has taken place. And that's more than just sort of warm feelings that we have for each other. It's, it's loving each other the way that Jesus loves us. It's humble love. It's sacrificial love. It's love that puts others before ourselves. It's supernatural because this kind of love does not exist in the world outside of God. Love and love for one another is evidence of our salvation. And if you have it, you'll find yourself wanting to be part of a Christian community. And then finally, John uh, writes, beginning in verse 12, our final point. Uh, He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So the final word I have for you this morning that offers us assurance of faith is growthification, uh, which is not a real word, but I had sanctification, justification, transformation, invitation, adoration. It just, it made sense. So, um, because John concludes this section with just, he, he, it's a little poem. In many of your Bibles, it's probably set apart, typed a little bit differently. It's poetic. And he identifies, you know, these three different groups of people, children, young men, and fathers. But I don't think we see these as physical descriptions he's using here, but as spiritual ones. 
His language is addressing the entire body of believers from, you know, sort of from the new baby Christians all the way up to the mature, you know, believers in Christ and then everybody in between. And the language here is a bit flowery. Again, it's poetic. So I don't want to overanalyze it, but I think John is just really talking here. He's telling us that no matter what stage you're at in your relationship with Christ, you know, there's, there's things to be amazed at. You know, from that moment we first believe and we realize our sins have been forgiven to that, to that moment when we realize we're, you know, growing in, in victory in our lives. From that moment when we begin to sort of faithfully open God's word and allow it to take root in our lives to finally, you know, where that moment we, we begin to realize that knowing Jesus is the best thing of all. It's a picture of ever-growing maturity in faith, faith, where there's always something new to discover. It's a picture of a life that isn't stagnant, but is living in pursuit of God. And you know, as we live out our salvation, it should, just, it should bring us closer and closer to God. There should you know, always be new joys on the horizon, you know, new wonders we're discovering every step of the way. And as I said earlier, we're going to unpack most of these points, those six points, uh, in the weeks ahead more fully. But it just, I think all of these, they just serve as an amazing reminder of the things that are taking place in our lives when it comes to salvation. And when we see the evidence of these things, even, you know, even if they're just little seedlings that are starting to grow, it's proof that God is at work in our life and proof that we are in his hands. When we see these things in our life, we should have the assurance that we are being truly rooted and firmly established in our faith because they're evidence that God is at work in our lives. And as we close, I just want to give you, I think, four quick applications that will give us just a bit of guidance as we look at these things being present in our lives. And some of these are, I guess, not corrections. What are the, what's the word? Just balance, maybe. Um, and the first thing I think we need to remember here is don't look at this list as a checklist of things that you need to do to be accepted by God. Um, because, you know, we get a list like this and we hear about all these things that we're supposed to be doing if we're saved. And some of us are tempted to go home and just, you know, take this list and start you know, giving us ourselves a score, you know, salvation, okay, check. Justification, yeah, check, that's pretty good. Um, but maybe the, uh, in adoration and imitation, that's a question mark. So, you know, I'm going to give myself half points there. And then you, at the end, you, you add it all up and you're like, I'm 62% saved. Uh, don't do that. That's not what this list is for. These are things that God is doing in your life. And yes, there's, again, there's things that you can do in your life to assist the things that God is doing. But if you want to focus on something, don't focus on that list or giving your score and yourself and all those. Focus on Christ. I really feel like when I have a list like that, the most important thing we need to do is the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 33, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The things in this passage are results of us following our true goal of knowing Jesus more. Focus on knowing him. Those things will be added to you. So don't look at them as a list of stuff you got to check off. Check off, I'm following Jesus. Then second, um, this one's important. Don't use this list as a report card for grading other people's salvation either. Um, at one of my churches I was at, we had one lady who started to come to church who had a hard life. And when I say hard life, I mean hard life. And we started to disciple her. Uh, and, you know, after about a year, uh, she still had a lot of rough areas in her life. 
And we sort of started hearing people in the church saying things like, I don't, you know, I don't think she's actually saved. You know, I, uh, she's still struggling with sin. And, you know, she's still not serving. And she's still, she just still doesn't, you know, she hasn't cleaned up enough. You know, she still doesn't look and sound like the rest of us. So, you know, they're, they're like, I don't think God's really at work in her life. Because she doesn't have those things on the list yet that we can see. And yet, if people understood the transformation that God had already done in her life just to get her through the doors of a church, they would be shocked and amazed. This is not a list of items we use to judge who is in and who is out of the kingdom. And keep that in mind. Then the third thing I want to give you here this morning is this. Remember that this, this is a process. This is a work that God is doing in our lives over time. So focus on your progress, not necessarily on your perfection. Because any one of us can look at our lives right now in this moment and probably see places where we are getting it wrong, um, places where we're still struggling. In a single sort of snapshot moment of our lives, there's so many places we look and we say, there's still so much work to be done. But you know, often when you look back on your life over months or even years, it's in those moments when you can see, you know, how far God has already brought you. And sometimes that can even be a wake-up call for us. Uh, you know, you think like, wow, you know what? I'm not struggling as much with that, that temptation in my life anymore. And you're like, wow, you know what? Look how much more of the Bible I do know today than I used to. And that's amazing. And, and you think, well, you know what? I have all of these new relationships with these Christians in my life I didn't have a year ago. And that's an encouragement to me. You know, God really is at work. And when you see that progress, you, you should rejoice. So it's not about that snapshot of how you're doing in that moment. It's about seeing how God has been taking you, uh, uh, moving you along the way. And I think, uh, bonus point, if you want to see that happening, keep a journal. If you want to just keep a journal of what God is doing in your life and just keep going back to those things, you will see how God is moving and working in your life. It's an amazing thing. And then finally this morning, um, my last point, don't focus on these things as a duty to be undertaken. Like, oh man, six more things. Oh, I just, yeah. Let them be a delight in your life to experience. I mean, imagine I said to my kids, uh, kids, tomorrow I'm going to make you all go on a forced march to take you on a journey, and it's for your own good. And I'm going to wake you up long before dawn. You're going to be tired. You're going to be cranky. You're going to have to pack a heavy bag. You're going to have to carry that bag all the time with you. You can't lose it. You're going to force you to wait in long lines. People are going to ask you questions along the way. There's going to be regulations. There's going to be rules. You're going to have to follow along the way. It's going to be hard. It's going to be long. And only after you're exhausted and nearly done will we finally arrive at our destination, and you'll like it. Who's with me? I mean, how do you think people respond? Or I could say, kids, we're going to Disneyland. Because it's the same list. You have to do all of those things. But it's the difference is your attitude and how you experience it along the way. One of the dangers of a sermon like this is people think to themselves, oh, great, like more stuff. Like I just don't need any more stuff right now. But don't see them as a duty. See them as a delight. See this as things that you have an opportunity to experience. See them as part of what God is doing in your life to bring you to a place of joy and a place of assurance. Because God doesn't, again, want his people living 
lives of doubt or discouragement or defeat. He wants us to live with a certainty of our salvation, reminding us that his plan will not fail, his work cannot be stopped, and his son and his sacrifice that he made will never fail. And we can really hold on to the promise of Philippians 1 verse 6, where Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. These are words of assurance for us all. And I hope they've been an encouragement to you as we learn to live in the assurance of all that God has done and as we see the work that God is, has, you know, has been doing in the lives of all those who are being saved. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful um, for the salvation that you have offered to us through your son Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, as we as we accept that gift that you have to begin given to us, we pray that we wouldn't have doubts about it. Uh, that, that, Lord, instead we would be able to look at our lives and see the evidence that you are truly at work, uh, that you are shaping us, that you are changing us, that you are transforming us, that you are putting us on this path of progress to make us more and more like Christ Jesus. And I pray that when we see those things, we would have confidence and assurance in our salvation. And Lord, it is a process. We're not all in the same place. And then there's different areas of each of our lives where we know we need, we need more work than other people. But Lord, I pray that those areas would not make us doubt. That they would not cause us to, to have guilt and wonder and, and if we're truly saved. But Lord, I pray that when we see those areas that they would remind us that they're just areas where you are at work and that if you are at work, our salvation um, is sure. And Lord, our salvation is complete in you. And Lord, as, we, as John writes, his purpose is to remind us that we can know that we have eternal life and that that is ours. And I pray that you would just give us peace, um, that Lord, you would give us rest in the knowledge of Christ Jesus and all that he has done for us. Reminding us that, Lord, it's not about us. It's not about how we're doing. It's not about the checklist that we get and, and, you know, the scores in any of these areas. That it's about the greatness of who you are. The greatness of your work and your salvation and your love and the life that you have put into us. And that, Lord, that is a work that you will continue to do. That's a promise that you have made to us. And again, I pray that you would give us that assurance as we live lives of faith in confidence because of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.